Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. Out, space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. The Offer of Utreat. Written by Erwin. Ages ago, when the world was new and everything had yet to be discovered, lived the Sanushi, the scoundrel. The Sanushi were young and strong, curious and clever, far cleverer than he had any right to be. And those elements of his personality caused him to be quite the figure of his time. You have likely heard tales and feature Sanushi the hoodwinker before. How he stole the ever-bearing fruit from the horgy of the swift. How he shot holes in the inky blackness of the duskay through a mighty sneeze. How he watched the wind and the skies and learned to tame them with his wings. You've heard all of these and more, so many more, but today the story was one that lies closest to our hearts. Sinuchi had the sky people. The faithful knight Sinuchi perched, as he often did, on the branches of the bomac tree, hidden by the white leaves, and pensive to the point of silence. He almost missed the coming of the strangers. Only by chance was he looking in the correct direction at the time of their arrival. One moment there was nothing in the clearing ahead of him, and the next there were appeared a cluster of strange beings. Sinushi, startled by the suddenness of it all, half opened his wings to fly away, but uh, his inquisitiveness, as it often did, called him to stay and observe. The strangers noticed the shifting of the leaves, but took it as nothing more than a passing breeze. Sinushi, the scoundrel, took it as a sign of good fortune, and set about learning what he was to be learned from these people who would travel without being seen. They were an odd group. They had no feathers of their own, for fur to keep them warm. They wore clothing, but that too was strange, brightly colored and thin, with patterns the Nushi himself had never seen before. They stood on two legs and had two arms for grasping, though they had no wings and no capability of flight. They kept looking at the starry sky and though they were searching for something, as though a part of them belonged there, far above everything else. They did this so often that, despite their sad terrestrial nature, Sonoshi started calling them the Sky People in his thoughts. Silent and still unseen, he watched the Sky People set up their camp. Here, too, was strangeness. Their abodes were thin and flimsy, roofed domes made of oddly uniform curved sticks and what looked like the same strange substance that they used for their clothing. No proper stone or mud walls to keep out the wind, no beautiful branches for decoration. As they packed themselves and their belongings into these weak huts, they swayed dangerously in the wind. Sanoshi wondered what they might be up to. He vowed to keep a close eye on them over the coming nights. The more Sanoshi the Hidwunka watched these people, the more he grew confused. They collected rainwater, as his people did, but didn't drink it, instead putting it into containers and examining it through a strange apparatus. 
They harvested small amounts of plants, but not to eat. This, too, they wanted to look at, with a greater care than a new parent looking after their children. They even collected what seemed to be nothing more than air around them, giving it the same contained observation that they had given the rest. Long did Sunushi watch the Sky People, and long did the Sky People give him strange things to observe. He grew most fond of watching the one of the smallest of the strangers. This one did not seem to have this dedication and patience of all the taller beings. Instead, the small one flitted this way and that, talking with everyone as they could in a strange, bubbling language they seemed to have. It did things that could only have been described as dancing and singing with joy and abandon that led Sinushi to a single conclusion. The smaller one must simply be a child. No other form of being could give itself so completely over to the sheer experience of emotion. Nights passed, during which Sinushi barely left his perch from the Bulmak tree. He ate little and slept less. The sky people were simply too perplexing. Too interesting a puzzle to leave alone for long. One morning, just before he was about to grab for himself what little sleep he would allow, Sinushi spotted the child of the sky people heading off by itself into the forest. He knew what a dangerous thing mornings were when the life of the forest woke up and started searching for sustenance. And so, despite his need to sleep, Sinushi found himself quietly following the child. He did not know if he could help the young one if he got into trouble, but to not do anything was a far worse fate. Thankfully, the child and the sky people didn't go far, merely slipping away to the next clearing. There, it sat down on a stone, unwrapped an item from its pocket, and took a bite. Its feet swung merrily in the air as it ate, and it hummed a strangely tuneless hum. The sheer joy of life the child was showing was contagious, and Sinushi suddenly found that he had let his guard down for a moment. Unnoticed, unseen, a hungry Zeruf had appeared at the edge of the clearing. Sinushi, the trickster, felt sorrow. Then, for as surety as he knew the sun rose and set each day, he knew that nothing escaped the sight of a Zeruf. The beast slowly approached the happy child, balls quietly padding along the forest floor. Its tail twitched back and forth, and its tongue hung out with hunger. The child looked up at time to see the toothed jaws open wide with a ravenous yawn. Sinushi shivered in sympathetic fear. It wouldn't be long now. Strangely, the child on the rock showed no signs of fear. The corners of his mouth turned up in the same friendly greeting it gave the other sky people, and it waved an upper appendage at the intruder. It spoke to the Zeruf. The Zeruf paused in its approach, considering this new and strange reaction to its presence. Sinushi watched, fearful yet intrigued. He had never seen this happen before. The child took a meal that it was about to eat and retrieved what looked like a meat filling from within. Again, it spoke to the Zeruf, waving the slice of meat back and forth. The Zeruf's eye swallowed the morsel warily. Zunushi simply stared at the sheer bravado of the gumption on display down in the forest floor. He was unable to do anything more. When the child of the sky people tossed a food offering in the Zeruf's direction, the Zeruf immediately dashed away to retrieve it. While it was eating, the young sky person took its cue and left, heading back towards the rest of its people. Sinushi had no idea how long he sat there pondering what it was he'd just seen. 
The sky people could communicate with animals, it appeared, or at least make themselves understood well enough to form bargains with them. This, he thought, would be a powerful thing to learn, if he could manage it. Many more nights passed. Sinushi the scoundrel returned to the Bomak tree to observe, staying as quiet as he could in order to hear the bubbling language of the sky people. He tried to make sense of what he heard, but though he was one of the cleverest to ever fly in the skies, he struggled to even form a word shapes of the strangers. Every morning, as though it had always been so, the child set off to eat its meal and the rock in the nearby clearing. Every morning, as it had become routine, Sanushi followed, observing his favorite of the strangers in the action that was unique to the child. Every morning, once it had learned to do so, the Zeruf arrived to take the tithe of the child's meal and departed without incident. Every morning, the child said the same thing to the Zeruf, and every sleepy afternoon, Sanushi practiced whispering the magic words that seemed to placate the beast. Then, one night, the sky people changed their schedule. They dismantled their strange-looking huts, which had been sturdier and than expected, for despite their flimsy appearance, they had not collapsed once, and gently returned to nature all the things that they had taken to observe with their strange instruments. They, as a group, had looked at the sky as one of their numbers spoke into a curiously shoddy box. They waited, and when Sonoshi blinked, they had disappeared from the clearing just as suddenly as they had arrived. There was nothing to show as they had once been there, aside from the trampled grasses. Sanushi felt lost. He no longer had the interesting strangers to observe, and that saddened him to no great degree, especially knowing that they would likely never again see the child that went through life with such joy. However, the sudden return of his ability to sleep and eat was as much as often as he wanted, soon quelled his sorrows and Sanushi, the hoodwinker, set off on the hunt. It was a bad night for game, and a bad night for luck. It took many hours for Sanushi to catch even one herald to eat, but one was better than none. Then, in a handful of breaths, a bad night of luck turned even worse. The hurl was too big for Sanushi to lift in flight, and he had tried to slice it in half. The scent of a fresh girl magnified by his bisecting efforts had attracted the wrong kind of attention. The wide, luminous eyes of the Zeruf peered at him from beside a tree, and the trickster could feel the desperate hunger in his gaze. He had hoped to test the words of the Sky Child in better circumstances. He had hoped to have a decent meal, but Sanushi was rational enough to know that being alive and hungry was still far preferable than being dead. With a quiver in his voice, he spoke what he had concluded to be the greeting word of the Sky People. Hideki! The words stirred awkwardly from his mouth, strangely and bubbling in form. The Zeruf snorted and tilted its head. Was it listening, or just confused that Sinoshi was speaking to it rather than fleeing or fighting? There was only one way to find out. Sinoshi lifted a larger half of his kill. There was no sense in offending the beast with the lesser food tithe. Then he spoke again. Do you want to treat? Neither Sinoshi nor the Zeruf moved. A shaky, uneasy silence descended from the forest, blanketing everything in a layer of uncertainty and possibility. It lasted an infinitesimal forever, broken as the Zeruf shifted its weight. In a panic flash, Shinosi tossed the larger half of the hull towards the dangerous carnivore, then grabbed the smaller half and took flight. 
Only when he was safe in the branch of the tree did he feel calm enough to look back to where he had once stood. The Zeruf had made short work of his food tithe, and, after a quick glance at Sonoshi, made him shiver. It peacefully lumbered off deeper into the forest. Had it worked, despite his terror and the makeshift nature of his offering, the magical bargaining words of the Sky People had worked when coming from his own mouth. This was far too important of a discovery to keep to himself. Sonoshi returned to his people with great excitement and taught them all what he knew. Some learned well, some didn't, and the other hand, it turned out that some Zerif listened well, and some didn't. Over many, many years, the words of the sky people passed from parent to child, giving them a little more confidence when out in the hunt. The Zerif, too, became little less wary of our people, and they learned to perk up and listen when the words of bargaining were used. Over many, many more years, we and the Zerif grew closer together. They now share our campfires and the warmth of our homes, where once we were the worst of enemies. We are now allies. We hunt together. We are in the air, and they are bound to land. And we are far better as a team than we have ever been alone. And for that, we thank the Sky People. End of story. Story number two. The Reception of Utreet. The hen rule stepped out of the airlock with a chick. The chaos sights and sounds of the local spaceport asserted themselves. It had been a whirlwind of a year for the body, and one had started off with a crude spaceflight through the farthest planets in the system, and that had ended with being welcomed into the greater extrasoda community. Looking at the sheer variety of forms of people walking by, Harul reluctantly had to admit that she was still suffering from a bit of cultural whiplash. Nevertheless, she made sure the translator unit was still firmly around her neck and she followed her rising unease. Looking down at her child, Kurun had recently achieved a day of first flight and had thus had the opportunity to ask for a boon. Why she had chosen to visit the spaceport, of all things, was a complete mystery to Hyrule. Maitri, the still small voice, made her smile. Her chick might be growing up, but she was definitely still young. Yes, my dear, what is it? She replied, picking the current up from where she rode atop the family's roof. Soon she'd be too large for the beast's indulgence. The holding her close as the large lumbering green mass wandered by. Her child hadn't noticed a thing, entirely entranced by the liveliness of the bustling place. Do you think the sky people will be here, Matri? Ah, so that was the reason. Hyrule smoothed a few feathers on her child's head as she chose her next words carefully. Kurin, sweetheart, you know, don't you, that Sanushi is just a story. Kurin nodded emphatically, almost wriggling out of her grasp. Almost. Yes, Maitri, but Scholar Prelim says that uh, in stories there is sometimes an in- Her child trailed off, and Harry Rule smiled to see her working so hard at remembering the difficult word. An element, she offered, once Curran had struggled enough. Yes, an element of truth, even. She smiled, her teeth still young and new enough to be razor sharp. So maybe there are sky people, or we just don't know it yet. Hyrule had just to hand it to Gurren. The little one was unquestionably enthusiastic and optimistic, even in the face of the smallest of odds. She supposed there was no sense in squashing that sense of youthful hope just yet. It's a great big universe out there, Gurren. Perhaps the sky people do indeed exist, somewhere far, far away. 
But since the distances are so big and this place is so tiny in the dark sky, it's possible that we won't meet any of them today. Not squashing hope, but certainly tempering expectations a little. That seemed a reasonable move. Curran, however, remained her usual cheery self. Maybe, but it's my day of first bite, and I have a good feeling, Matry. In that case, we'll have to keep our eyes open, watching and observing, just like Sanushi. Curran finished the saying for her, and she had known her child would. Can I ride poultry some more, Matry, while we search? All right, but only as long as poultry will pay you, and not a moment more. Promise to get down and do your own walking at his first shake. When little Curran nodded, she placed her child on the Zeruf's furry back. She'd been hesitant to bring it along in this chaotic place, but she had to admit that it was comforting thought that she had Palti on her side if things turned foul. With a childish stride, Palti, nothing more seemed to be needed by it to be said. Hyrule began slowly walking along the corridors, trying not to be startled by every echo and footsteps made. Hyrule eventually lost track of how many different sorts of beings there had said hello to. It all morphed into a long, hideous blur of various novel greeting gestures, none of which had held any real importance or meaning to her. Curran, however, seemed to revel in it, doing her best to remember how each person liked to say hello and practicing the variations endlessly on the passerby. Her daughter was coping with the rise to the extra soda scene far better than she herself had, and Hyrule wondered if people like her were going to be holding a pole back. Then she shook off her unease as best she could. It was a change, a large one, certainly, but still only a change, nothing more and nothing less. She could learn to cope. How about them? she asked Curran, pointing at a group of lurid yellow people wobbled as they walked. With the patience that only a child could have, Curran shook her head and felt what was three hundredth time. Can't be sky people, Matry. Their clothes are wrong. Ah, yes, she placated. I see it now. They can't be the sky people after all. Abruptly, Palti's stomach rumbled and gave a quiet whine. Almost as if in response, Curran's belly called out for food as well, the two sounds achieving no element of harmony whatsoever. Hyrule could only smile. The cacophony seemed almost fitting in this place. Shall we see about getting something to eat, Curran? Yeah! Curran eagerly grabbed her hand, pulling Palti along with the other. I smelled something delicious earlier, Matry. Can we go looking for it? At the thought of a delicious meal, Hyrule's own stomach gargled, causing her to laugh. I don't see why not. Seems like our bellies are all in agreement here. It took far longer than expected to reach the area of the spaceport that served food, and longer still to locate exactly which booth was the one serving the meal that had smelled the best and to stand in line to purchase some. Thankfully, the booth's offerings, what appeared to be a stew of some sort, were both affordable and safe for the body to eat. And it was much great satisfaction that Hyrule found a vacant table and sat down with a child and pet to have their meal. The stew was meaty and flavorful, and disappeared down her throat far more swiftly than politeness might have asked for. Hunger simply spoke louder, and was the easiest to appease. A glance at Curran showed that she fared no better in attempting restraint, as she was polishing off the last of her bowl with the gusto. As for the Zruf, had always been exceptionally keen about meals. Hyrule knew without looking that Palti had undoubtedly finished first. Matry, 
Goran's small voice found its way to her ears, sounding uncharacteristically urgent. What is it? Hyrule glanced briefly around for danger, but found none. Balti, too, seemed at ease. Perhaps it was something else. Are you still hungry? Did you want a second helping us too? No, Matri, look. Hyrule looked. At a nearby table sat a bee, one of the sort they had not seen yet. It seemed unremarkable as the species went. No feathers, no fur, no claws, no wings, just two pairs of appendages, upper and lower. Matri, Curran breathed. It's a sky person. Hyrule looked again at the nearby table. The physical features of the being did seem to match the story, down to the exotic patterns on the clothing that it wore. But that could be merely coincidence. She turned back to her child to say so, only to blink in surprise. Curran has gone. A glance back at the most likely direction proved fruitful, and Hyrule grimaced. Her excitable daughter had struck up a conversation with this person, and she knew from experience that it would be difficult to dissuade her from her notions. With a growing sense of need to perform some sort of parental damage control, she approached Curran, knowing that loyal Palti would be following behind. Matri, Corin squealed as soon as her rule had come within conversational range. This is Lloyd, and he is totally a sky person. Thankfully, Lloyd had his own translator unit and didn't seem to be enraged or offended by Corin's forwardness, just confused. I'm not familiar with your sky people, he confessed, gesturing at the empty seat to be stable. You might have to explain it to me. You just got to be a sky person. Corin exclaimed. You've got no feathers, no fur, no wings and no claws, and your clothing is bright and colorful, and your words are all bubbly and round before they get translated. Then her daughter, claiming the empty chair, sat back with a toothy grin of satisfaction, as though her words explained everything necessary. It's an old tale of our people, added Hyrule nervously, hoping that this being could fill in the gaps that left unsaid. A legend. A legend? Lloyd returned Curran's smile with one of his own. I always thought it would be interesting to be a legendary figure. I didn't think it would be this easy, though. Abruptly, he jumped to his seat with a little and turned to look down at his right side. And what have you here? Leaning over, Hyrule could see a familiar snout snuffling away at one of Lloyd's feet. Her heart dropped. Please understand the concept of blitz. Please, please let this go well. That's Balti. How's the roof? Curran said with pride. Totally unaware of the tension Hyrule was feeling, Lloyd reached out with a natural ease, letting Zeruf smell him before rubbing the top of Palti's head, where he was the softest. Hi, doggy, he said in appraising tones that made Palti's tail wag harder. It's been so long since I've seen something like you out here. It's good to see you. Hyrule froze. No. Oh, she couldn't have heard what she had just heard. The emphasis of Lloyd's words was wrong. It wasn't quite the words of bargaining. It had been a coincidence. It had to. Palti hummed with aspiration as Lloyd's fingers slipped through his ears, delivering the sort of scratch that he liked the best. That's a fine dog, um, Zeruf, you have there. The Lloyd glanced over at his own stew bowl. A half-empty and Hyrule's feathers began to itch with dread. He fished out a larger chunk of meat from the hole. I noticed that you were feeding Palti the same thing. You mind if I give your dog a treat? No, no, it can't be. 
Corrin's squeal chirped with triumph, showing a level of delight seldom shown even in the youngest of hatchlings. Marty, did you hear his natural words? He knows both of the words of bargaining. Lloyd is a sky person. Oh, I just knew today was his lucky day. Hyrule watched blankly as it was Lloyd's turn to freeze, barely able to register the dim happiness he felt in the fact that she wasn't the only one thrown off by the situation. Wait, some of my words untranslated sound familiar to you? Yes, Goran looked forward, looking as though she was on the verge of unlocking some ancient secret. Hideo and you treat. For a long moment, Lloyd said nothing, though he was clear from the look in his eyes that he was thinking fast. When he finally did react, he pulled a small device from his pocket and started pressing buttons. Well, you excuse me for a minute. He turned away, speaking into the device as quickly and quietly as he could. But Hyrule couldn't help but overhear Lloyd's side of the conversation. Hi, Jim. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I think we've got ourselves a case of ancient cultural cross-contaminate. No, I'm serious. The Bolay. No, I don't think it's too serious overall. In short, um, they've got dogs. Yes, space dogs. Yes, I know. Okay, goodbye, Jim. Thanks. The conversation, clearly over, Lloyd returned the device to his pocket. Then he turned back to face them. Legends have sometimes surprising element of truth to them, don't they? Lloyd gave them a friendly smile, clearly trying to diffuse the rising concern both he and Hyrule were feeling. It was only somewhat effective. All this legend wants is to find out the exact nature of that truth. I think the feeling is mutual, admitted Hyrule weakly. The sky people were real all along. I knew it. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And, if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode, and I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.